in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that's what you can't see, I say to you, get up and walk. And when the paralytic gets up and walks, his walk talks, and what his walk says is, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he ties something you can't see to something you can see in order to sustain uh, in order to sustain the claim, which makes the miracle a PowerPoint. It's a point about Jesus's power. It's yeah. an audio visual about what Jesus is about. Hey guys, and welcome to the Defending Christianity podcast. You can probably guess what we'll be doing, defending Christianity. While looking at different arguments that try to disprove Christianity, our goal is to look at the evidence that supports the claim of Christianity that our argument is targeting. Join me as we discuss from a skeptical perspective how Jesus is who he says he is and how God includes you in his redemptive plan for humanity. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and this is the Defending Christianity Podcast. Enjoy! Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is the second episode of the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm so glad that you are listening. We're going to discuss something really great today. We're going to be having a special guest today, getting into our first discussion on what we know about Christianity and how we know that this is true. So our special guest that we had was Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Daryl Bach is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he's written over 40 books. And so if y'all ever want a new read, y'all should go check out his stuff. It's all on Amazon and other places where books are sold. And also there's going to be a bonus episode where Dr. Bach discusses his latest project. It's called Jesus, Skepticism, and the Problem of History. It's the criteria and context in the study of Christian origins. They got a bunch of scholars together and they just updated what we know about the historical Jesus. And so it's very interesting. It was forwarded by N.T. Wright. And so y'all should check that out because there's a lot of good stuff in there that that y'all would enjoy and appreciate. And our bonus episode, of course, goes into more discussion about that. So y'all be sure to check that out as well. And so for this episode, we're going to be talking about the Gospels, the authors of the Gospels a little bit, the time frame between the events that the Gospels have and the writing of the Gospels themselves, the canon of the Gospels, and what we know about Jesus. And so Dr. Bach, I was able to sit down and discuss with him a little bit about this and the, these questions and concerns and, and how these things actually tell us what we know about Jesus. And he also talks a little bit about how the overall American culture has shifted from believing in the authority of the Bible to questioning it and how there are a lot of Christians now who have to actually defend the authority of the Bible without knowing how because that's not what we're used to, especially in the Deep South, as he discusses. You'll hear more about that in a few minutes. And so I hope you listen in as we discuss with Dr. Bach exactly what it is that we know to be true about Jesus and the Gospels and the claims of Christianity as a whole. And so to start us off, Dr. Bach is going to discuss with us exactly what the problems and what the challenges are with people, especially in the Deep South, but other places too, about the problem with not having the evidence and the resources to know why we believe in Christianity outside of the Bible as a whole. And so now let's get into our conversation with Dr. Bach. Well, first of all, thank you for for doing this. No, glad to do it. Um, Do you think that that's a problem now? Like there's a lot of people who kind of grow up since you were raised, you've heard, you've heard that it was true. So you don't think about the evidence that you have or don't have. Do you think that that's a problem for a lot of Christians today? Yeah, I do. I think a lot of Christians who grow up in a bubble for whom the citation of the scripture is enough. Mm -hmm. And I actually think this has been kind of the way the church has functioned for a long time. The church functioned with a Judeo Christian net around the culture So if you cited the Bible, it was viewed with respect. It was accepted as a resource and a source to be trusted and all those kinds of things. 
Um, a lot of that is not true in much of the culture today. The Judeo-Christian net is basically gone unless you live in parts of the deep south. And, and so, um, so, so how do I have a conversation with someone who, if I say the scripture says this, um, they go, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, why should I trust the scripture? A, a short way of saying this is we were used to being able to say it was true because it's in the Bible. Now we have to say it's in the Bible because it's true. And that's, that is a different kind of argumentation that you're undertaking and a responsibility for a different kind of argumentation. It's not always, you know, 100% snow white clean in terms of the way in which you pursue it, but at least it gives you a basis for having a conversation with someone whose standard and approach to things may be different than your own. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I have a friend, he, he doesn't believe in the infallibility of the Bible, he thinks that because it was written by men who were sinful, that therefore it probably has the errors. I'm sure you've heard that a lot. <laughs> but so what background are you from? Are you from the one that, that was kind of in that bubble too, or did you always need the evidence for the No, I didn't come her? to the Lord till I was in college. So I approached Christianity having been a skeptic, which is mm-hmm. why I am concerned about how you communicate with people who don't believe what the Bible says. And so how do I actually get someone to think about that? The other key question here is, is that almost every other source we work in with in our life, we don't believe to be a hundred percent infallible. And yet we still oftentimes trust much of what they say to us. So I don't have to have an infallible Bible at, from an argumentation standpoint in order to get someone to take an argument that that source present seriously. Um, I think we've set ourselves up for problems. Now, theologically, there's a reason for believing this is what the Bible is, because we believe God's behind it, what God says is true. But I don't have to go there to have a conversation with someone who's just trying to understand, can I even, can I even understand and accept the core outline of the way this history is laid out without having to have every T crossed and every, every I dotted? Um, and, and frankly, if I get to the point, I, mean, I like to make this point, if someone hangs around with a teacher for three and a half years and sits in their class on a daily basis, they probably have a pretty good idea of what they taught and what they thought about themselves. Yeah. So all the disciples have to do is kind of sort of get it right that Jesus was, you know, was that the Jesus that they presented was who he claimed to be because they knew him that well. Mm-hmm. And I can have the discussions I want to have about Jesus. Yeah, for sure. And those were some raw discussions that, that Jesus and the disciples had, like they were, they were real. You know, Jesus had rebuked Peter plenty of times and stuff like that, you know. And so they saw the real Jesus is all that I'm saying. Yeah, and I'm um, saying so they would know whether or not Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, whether he claimed to be at the center of God's program, you know, what he was saying about himself, what he was doing. They just had to get that kind of right, which is probably likely since they spent so much time with him. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then we have the discussions about Jesus we want to have as believers. And just to move forward, we'll go into the greater discussion about this, but I know that whenever they talked about Jesus being the Messiah, they always did it indirectly. Or Jesus talking about himself, right? Because isn't that That's right, because there was a misunderstanding that. about what kind of Messiah they would have expected him to be had he come out and said it directly because they were not anticipating suffering for example, uh, 
and they were expecting someone who was going to come and conquer immediately, okay, which isn't what Jesus was about either. So he had to reframe how it is not just people in general, but the disciples in particular saw how, in what sense he was Messiah. And this is real clear in the text, because right after you get the confession from Peter, which Jesus affirms that he is the Messiah, uh, Jesus begins to teach on his suffering, and Peter goes, no, 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 that's not what the Messiah does. And Jesus goes, oh, yes, 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 that's what this Messiah is going to do. <laughs> so, um, so you know, so it's clear there were some misunderstandings that needed to be clarified be before they were in a position, much less as larger audience, in a position to understand the kind of mission he was undertaking. Mm -hmm. And just some clarity, they expected a different Messiah to, to conquer. Was it the Roman rule that they wanted that they expected the Messiah to conquer in, in some cases, yes. They didn't. Uh, it, it's hard to say because there are Jewish materials that see a defeat of Satan as mm -hmm. kind of the core goal. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of people were thinking uh, a political liberation only or a liberation from uh, Rome primarily. And that certainly was uh, something far less than what it was Jesus was trying to achieve. All right. I appreciate it. Um, so since we're already there, we can start with the Gospels. So, there, you know, there's debates that claim the names of the Gospels did not write the actual Gospel names. Like, John didn't write John. There's debates about that. People say that a lot. So is that true? And what do we know that proves them to be credited to those people? Well, uh, this is a long conversation in, in terms of its detail. But basically... Um, my, my own conviction is, is that the church has a sense of where these came from before they put them into a large circulation across the church. In other words, even though these documents in and of themselves don't name the authors and the, the titles that are attached to them came later and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. I don't think the church would have put these documents in circulation without having some sense of where they came from and who was responsible for them. So let's take Luke, for example. Luke appears to be written by a companion of Paul. This is on the basis of the we sections that we see in Acts. Um, again, this is another detailed discussion, but that certainly is one way they've certainly been taken. And it excludes anyone who's named as a companion of Paul uh, because the we includes someone who hasn't been named anywhere else in Acts. So that would still leaves you with a limited amount of candidates as to who that might be, Epaphras, Epaphroditus. I could go through a list of people who are not named in Acts who were associated with Paul. And yet the tradition, despite having all those choices, is unanimous in saying Luke is the companion of Paul who wrote the third gospel in Acts. There's no indication anywhere in the tradition of a dispute about that or anything like that. Uh, and so, and we pretty, we're pretty confident the titles go back into the second century and that the, uh, certainly the tradition that we're talking about starts at the latter part of the second century and moves into the third. So, um, so, so the fact that there's a lack of discussion and debate and that the tradition seems to be pretty clear about who this author is, I think speaks to the quality and age of that tradition about authorship uh, that we have, and thus the likelihood that it's the case. Or let me give you another example. The liberal theory is that um, we don't know who wrote the who wrote each gospel, so the church supplied a name attached to each gospel of a luminary who would give it 
uh, status uh-huh. by connecting the, uh, the author to that work. Well, let's take Mark as the example. Okay, Mark, we know in the tradition, we know this from Papias, uh, that um, Mark was associated with Peter in terms of the production of that gospel. At least that's what Papias claims. So you're the early church, and you have a choice of naming the gospel, the gospel according to Peter, because it's rooted in his preaching, or the gospel according to Mark, okay? Because that's the tradition says he's the one who actually penned the gospel. And you're sitting there saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack. I don't know who wrote this, but I have the choice between Peter and Mark for who wrote the second gospel. And as the early church, I'm going to choose between Peter and Mark. Now, we know who Peter is by the history of the gospels, etc. What do we know about Mark? We know, know only a couple of things. Went home to Mama after the first missionary journey because he couldn't take the pressure. Was the cause of a dispute between Paul and Barnabas before the second missionary journey, and Barnabas took him along, and Paul didn't want, to, want him to go along. Okay, those are, two, those are the two luminary things we know about Mark. So you're given a choice between Peter and everything that you know about him, and Mark and what you know about him. And if you were to make the calls of the church, which person would give the highest attestation to the second gospel, who would you choose? You make the call. Yeah, I think then and now it'd both be Peter, for sure. It'd be Peter, without blinking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet, the gospel is named the gospel according to Mark, which tells me the tradition knew something and didn't feel the freedom to deviate from what the tradition said about who this author was. You would never pick Mark out of a hat if you could pick from everybody in the early church. Yeah, that's right. It would definitely get rid of that claim that it was just, tied to somebody to give it credibility or give it a status, like you said. So, yeah, um, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, what would you say to people who say that the God, the divinity side of, of Jesus wasn't really there? Um, you know, in the Synodic Gospels, there's traditionally John is more um, theological than that. Um, what do you? What do we have in the Synoptic Gospels that points to, to Jesus being 100% man, but also 100% God at the same time? He's doing God stuff all over the place. Okay, <laughs> so, and they and, and they still say sin, that that it doesn't have anything in there. Giving, he's forgiving sins and giving evidence for it mm-hmm. by the way in which he ties the healing that he performs to what it is that he's claiming. He claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. He um, calms the winds and the waves. That's God's stuff. That's God showing his control over the creation. He's changing liturgy, um, the liturgy of the Passover, into the symbolism of his death. Mm. And that's rooted in Torah. Who gives him the right to do that? Um, He declares what's clean and isn't clean. Okay, that's another thing that Torah provides. He's doing God's stuff all over the place. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the last thing that's really important is in the dispute with the Jewish leadership in which the choice is, Jesus has claimed that God's going to exalt me to his right hand. And the Jewish view that what you just claim to be able to sit with God in heaven is blasphemy. When we come to the resurrection and we have the empty tomb, God votes in that dispute and he votes for exaltation with the tomb being empty. And so I tell people, Jesus's claim in front of the Sanhedrin was, you can do with me whatever you want. You can crucify me and put me to death, but God's going to vindicate me. And one day you'll be able to write me at www.righthandofgod.com. And I will reply. 
So, um, uh, so uh, I will come back and be your judge one day. They didn't like that answer. And the resurrection is the proof of that claim. So yes. not only did Jesus do God's stuff, God did stuff that showed that what Jesus was doing was God's stuff and vindicated his claims. That's right. So I'm really familiar with, with something that, that you talk about a pretty good amount about the, the paralytic and how you said that Jesus always tied his authority to the proof of it by these PowerPoints or these miracles. Um, but for the ones who, who are listening but and aren't very familiar, could you maybe kind of just Tell about how they are connected. How does him? Yeah, make it's, it's, it's pretty easy. So you know, the, you know, the scene, the paralytic is that four friends have this guy drop in front of Jesus while he's teaching a house full of people, and as the paralytic is sitting there wanting to be healed, Jesus doesn't say to him, "You're healed." He says to him, "Your sins are forgiven." And I always joke with people when I tell this story. So you're the paralytic who's dropped in and you're sitting in front of Jesus, and you're waiting to be healed so you can walk, and Jesus instead says to you, your sins are forgiven. What are you thinking? <laughs> you're thinking, that's not why I crashed this party. You know, that's not why I'm here. What in the world are you doing bringing up my sins when all I want is to be healed? And then Jesus, and the theologians in the audience sometimes are a clue as to what's going on. They actually get what Jesus is doing. No one can forgive sins but God alone. So what in the world is he doing? So he says... What's easier to say, um, uh, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's a trick question because in one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't see whether that's actually happened or not. It's easy to say, just hard to see whether it's taken place or not, hard to verify. So, so he says your sins, and no one's seen forgiveness of sins. You haven't, I haven't, no one sees. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it isn't a case of, of someone going, oh, bye sin, nice to see you, glad you're going away, hope you never come back. There's no way to see forgiveness of sins. But if I say to someone who can't walk, get up and walk, it's showtime. Okay, yeah. something's got to happen. So what Jesus does is he ties something you cannot see and a claim that you cannot see to a claim that you can see, which people believe will only happen if God is at work. And so he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that's what you can't see, I say to you, get up and walk. And when the paralytic gets up and walks, his walk talks, and what his walk says is, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he ties something you can't see to something you can see in order to sustain uh, in order to sustain the claim, which makes the miracle a PowerPoint. It's mm -hmm. a point about Jesus's power. It's yeah. an audio visual about what Jesus is about. Yeah, and then it's showing his divinity in exactly. the synoptic gospel. Yeah. Um, I mean, there so, are miracles that humans perform in the Old Testament, but they don't do it by claiming to have the authority that God has. They get do it by either praying that God would do it or that God would act through them, something like that. But Jesus does what he does very, very directly yes, to sir. show that he possesses this authority. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to the writing of the Gospels real quick, um, we know that they were written a couple years at least after, you know, these events actually happened. Um, so people think that the memories of these disciples faded and things got exaggerated or forgotten or mixed up. So how can we trust that their memory, 
you know, or their recall of the events actually were accurate to what actually happened after so many years between the two. Well, we're back to what I was mentioning earlier, which is in the conversation that you have with someone who doesn't have a high regard for the Bible, all you need is that they have enough regard for what's being said that the core of the story is likely to be correct. You might discuss and debate a detail or two whether they've got that right, but we trust sources all the time that we sometimes will sense, well, that may not, may or may not be the case, but the core claim that they're making here is something I've got to think about. And so, uh, so I think it, the, the core story about Jesus coming through the disciples is so consistent about how central he is in the plan and program of God and what he's doing, that if they've got that wrong, they've gotten everything wrong. <laughs> and uh, so, so I think that's the way way to talk about it, is that some of these details are things that we could discuss. There's a way to, to see them that shows that there's not a problem, but there might be a way to see it that suggests, ah, oh, maybe that's something that could be uh, up for grabs. Uh, uh, you know, and I tend to obviously think that uh, in every case you can explain what's there, but that's a that's a conversation, but that's a side conversation to the major point that's coming from the text. Yeah, for sure. So they never actually write down the quote words for Jesus, you know, verbatim, but they do get the overall. Well, they don't have to. Is the point. In other words, I can report accurately uh, about something historically without having to quote exactly what's being said. When this podcast is over, you know, and someone goes and says, well, you know, uh, Levi had a nice conversation with Dr. Bach, and Dr. Bach was, and now, now forget that I'm making this an illustration, Dr. Bach was saying that we can defend the credibility of the Gospels, even though I never actually utter that sentence outside this example, okay? Someone's not going to go, well, that was an inaccurate summary of the conversation that we had. They, all they'll be looking for is that that summary was an adequate summation of a much longer conversation that we had, and they would be quite content with that summary. So there are ways to present history besides quoting. You can summarize, you can paraphrase, you can explain. There are lots of ways to do it, and it can still be accurate, and that's what I think the Gospels give us. It's so funny because just up until a couple of years ago, I thought that the words written in red were uttered exactly by Jesus. <laughs> So hard to do because because much of the text is in Greek and he probably spoke Aramaic. Yeah, like I said, I never knew any of this because up until recently, the past couple of months, I didn't explore it and know anything about it. So I was just in that bubble like you were talking about. Um, so what do we have as proof for the resurrection? What is it and what does it say about Christ's claim about who he was? Well, I think, the, I think there are two very important pieces. One is the fact that uh, women are the first witnesses. You would never create a story that way in the ancient world. Women didn't count as witnesses in the culture, generally speaking. There were only very limited situations in which they could testify and their testimony be accepted in a court of law. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to promote an unpopular idea, physical resurrection, in a culture that for the most part doesn't believe in it. Okay, the Greeks don't believe in it. Only some Jews believed in it. And the first set of witnesses that you have coming forward for this controversial idea are people who culturally don't count as witnesses. You would never make up the story that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
the fact that the women are in the story and are part of the communication chain for what's meant here means the women were in the original story. That's the first part. The second part is, is you've got someone like the Apostle Paul who persecuted the church, lived in Jerusalem, understood what the debate was between Judaism and Christianity, was converted within probably a year and a half to a couple of years of the events themselves. He literally lived on top of the events. He knew what what the Jews were saying, what the Jewish leadership was saying about Jesus. He knew what the early church was saying about Jesus. And lo and behold, he doesn't say things like the resurrection is made up or something like that. In fact, the Jewish tradition doesn't say that. The Jewish tradition tries to explain how you get an empty tomb, okay? Uh, they, they aren't saying this is a myth, it's made up. They're having to deal with the fact that they never found the body, you know? And so you put all that together, and I think the, that makes a case for taking at least the claim of resurrection pretty seriously. For sure. I had to mute myself halfway because the rain's getting pretty bad and I didn't want the rain to be over you. So I apologize about that. No problem. Um, so when we're dealing with the overall canon of the Bible, what does the Apocrypha have to do with it? And why do we as evangelical Christians not accept the, the Gospels, just the, just the Gospels of the, of the Apocrypha, like the Gospel of Thomas. Okay, um, when we use the term Apocrypha, we've got to be clear, because there are two Apocryphon, okay? There are the books that come between the Old and New Testament that are part of what is sometimes called the Apocrypha, or the Jewish Apocrypha, which the Catholic Church accepts as books of the Old Testament. They're called the Deuterocanonicals. We're not talking about that collection. And that collection, just as an aside, wasn't viewed as scripture in the Catholic Church until after we got through the Reformation. Although they were cited regularly as, as sources, they weren't treated as scripture until we got into the controversies of the Reformation. And they were never a part of the official Jewish canon when Josephus, in the end of the first century, is naming the books of the Old Testament. The apocryphal books aren't in that list. So, so that's the Old Testament Apocrypha. Now, there's another collection called the New Testament Apocrypha in which there are Gospels that post-date the canonical Gospels that oftentimes are what we call Gnostic Gospels, which comes out of a Greek philosophical syncretism with Christianity, which would never go back to the first generation because the first generation came out of Judaism, they believed that the creation was good, they believed that God was good, and then the creation uh, became flawed as a result of the fall, those kinds of things. Gnostic Christianity doesn't believe that. Gnostic Christianity believes the creation was a product of secondhand, second-level gods, and it was flawed from the very beginning. So the origins of Gnostic Christianity are such that we know they don't go back to the earliest generations and thus to the Gospels that the earliest generations produced. Thus, they are not in the canon, okay? They are, they are part of what was operating on the periphery of Christianity in the second and third centuries. Right, and there's a lot in there that kind of contradict the, the nature of Jesus that we have in the canon. The yeah, the point that I like to make is, is that I mean, that's also true, but the point that I like to make is, is that you couldn't explain the origin of this material, even on their doctrine of God, mm -hmm. that it's flawed there as well. And, and so, which is, 
which is a key point to start from because, like I said, the earliest generation of Christians came out of Judaism and they shared the same fundamental view of God and the creation that Jews had at the time. And the early Gnostic Gospels don't share that view. Yeah, that's something that, that y'all discuss a good bit on in, in The God Who Speaks, which I've, I've watched probably more times than a normal 19-year-old should watch. But <laughs> I'm trying to get all the information in my head where I can actually retain it to somebody in the world. Um, I actually got the, like the director of The God Who Speaks. I'm blanking on his name, but he sent me of like a bibliography of a bunch of different works that would actually help me be able to learn more. So that was really nice of him. Um, That's great. That's well, you give your you give your professors their greetings. Um, you know, um, that's quite a team. Hayes and Duvall. Oh yeah, so. their their textbooks. Really, I I buy them. I don't even rent them. I keep them. <laughs> their textbooks are really good. Are you working on another book right now? Are you starting on? Yeah, I've got a book coming out on cultural engagement in September called called Cultural Intelligence. It's about how to live effectively in a diverse, pluralistic world. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for that. I'm definitely going to be ordering that one too. So you have a great day. And I, again, I really appreciate your time. Glad to do it, Levi. All the best. All right. And so we are thankful for Dr. Bach and the discussion that, that we had with him. So we see that the Gospels are valid because we have so many things to go on. I was watching this video last night where they were talking about the Gospels and how we know that they're true. And it talked about how there were these community stories. It was oral for for a long time. And people say that when it's oral, things get mixed up and it's stuff like that. And they go by this idea that, you know, when you whisper something to one person and you carry it down to 12 people, by the time it gets to the last person, what was said is nothing similar to what was said in the beginning. And they kind of say that that's what it must have been like. And that's why we know that the Gospels aren't true, because if it was given orally, then then things must have gotten changed. But they talked about how that's not really good uh, an, an analogy there. And it's because of the fact that these oral stories were given in a community. And so they were very reliable, because if somebody said something wrong in a story, the entire community would say, no, 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 that's not right, and correct them. And so these stories, although they were given orally, they were reliable and they were consistent throughout. And so that's one thing that, that we can be confident about is that these Gospels that we have tell what Jesus was like, the things that he taught, and that they're accurate in doing those things. Now for the next episode, I want to kind of focus and stay in the New Testament for now. We're going to be talking about the New Testament canon and how we know that, that the books that we have in the New Testament canon are the ones that God would want us to have. And so some questions that people bring are, how do we know that these are the ones that they wanted? Would, would God even recognize this New Testament if he would read it? You know, People object to it because of the books that the early church fathers decided not to put in the, in the canon. And so there's a lot of debates on it. And so the next episode, we're going to be having Dr. Craig Blomberg, and he's going to be discussing with us the, the reliability of the New Testament and how we know that the canon of the Testament is true. He's going to tell us how it came to be and what were the steps and the process in that. And so we're going to be looking forward to talking to Dr. Craig Blomberg about that. Dr. Craig Blomberg is an American New Testament scholar. He is currently a 
distinguished professor of the New Testament at Denver Seminary in Colorado, where he has been since 1986, and his area of academic expertise is, in fact, the New Testament. And so that's going to be good for us, as we're going to be expecting some some reliable information from him as somebody who studied this basically his entire life. But just to go back on our discussion from today, for anybody who who is not a believer or who is a skeptic, um, you've heard the argument, and I hope that it's something that that you can kind of take away from and at least just think about, because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ was a real person who came as God in flesh, and he lived a sinless life that led to his horrific crucifixion so that you could be with God in his presence for eternity. And don't ignore the proof that we have of it, because if you do, then saying that you didn't know won't be an excuse, because you were given the opportunity to know and accept him as Lord of your life. Heaven is a real place. And just to be real for a minute, hell is also a real place. And the worst part about it isn't the traditional idea of fire. That's secondary. You might be thinking, well, Levi, how can that be secondary? It's fire. Let me just say that you shouldn't be scared of fire in this instant, because that's not the real torment. The real pain of hell, the real torment, and the real punishment is being eternally separated from your Creator, God, who loves you. The real thing that's going to hurt is not flames. It's being completely isolated from the community in which your eternal soul was meant to be in for eternity with God and with Jesus. Jesus came to this earth, and in Matthew 4.17, he said, Repent, the kingdom of God is near. And what he meant was that the kingdom of God has come down to earth and is standing right in front of you. All you have to do is reach out and grab it at yours. And that's what he's saying to you today. He's given you this chance to see the proof that you need, and now it's your responsibility to go where the argument leads. And if you're actually searching for truth, then the place where it's going to lead you is right to a cross where Jesus of Nazareth will be. No. Better yet, it'll lead you to an empty tomb. Because death has been defeated, and Jesus Christ lives. And now, He wants you to live too. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and this is the Defending Christianity Podcast. See you guys next time.